Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, and we are going to talk about how to make marriage a passionate adventure and not a giant to-do list. Yes. And I am here with my daughter, Rebecca. Hello. And we are one week out, less than one week out. Less than a week. For the launch of our new book, The Great Sex Rescue. Yes, at the time of recording this, we're a week out. By the time you will hear it, it will be less than a week. Yeah, and we're so excited. We are so blown away by everybody's support. The pre-orders have been amazing. We've been having so much fun in our launch team on Facebook and the reviews are coming in which are so encouraging and basically people have been asking me who is this book for like what if yeah. my sex life isn't that bad what if we're actually doing well and what everyone keeps saying is I didn't think I needed this book but when I read it it's like holy cow I realized how much I had internalized a lot of really bad teachings and this just set me free and that's yeah. what we hear over and over again. This just set me free. And so today we want to set you free. So we have some fun stuff to share with you today. First, we have some good news. Yes. Are you ready? And this is good news from our book. So this is the new research segment of our podcast. And today we're just going to use our own research. We, we are. like it. And it we like cool. our research. And this is one of those things which is just a nice feel good one. Because sometimes we've had some heavy podcasts lately. We want to feel good research. So yes. what, what did we find, Becca? So we asked women to rank like strongly agree to strongly disagree a bunch of different things, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things we asked them were th was this question. In our marriage, my opinions are just as important as my husband's. Okay. okay? So women who believed that were 9.2 times more likely to be satisfied with the amount of closeness they shared with their husbands during sex. They were 6.74 times more likely to say their husband makes her sexual pleasure a priority. Yes, women who believe that their opinions are just as important as their husbands were 4.72 times more likely to say that their husbands spend enough time on foreplay so that she's excited and aroused and they begin intercourse. So he cares about their feelings and he cares about her pleasure. Pleasure, yay. Okay, they are 4.31 times as likely to say I am comfortable talking to my husband about what feels good sexually and what I need sexually. Which we actually know from other research is and our own research as well is a very very strong determinant of female orgasm yes you have to be able to tell them what you like yeah they're also 3.24 times more likely to become frequently aroused which again makes sense yep they're 2.43 times more likely to say I am confident about my ability to become aroused mm -hmm. and they are 2.26 times more likely to say that they frequently orgasm during sexual activity with their husband and here's a good one they're 1.38 times less likely to experience vaginismus which or is primary awesome. sexual pain and 1.9 times less less likely to say that they could take or leave sex. Yes. So they're much more likely to actually want sex, to actively want sex. And they are 3.61 times less likely to say, I engage in sex with my husband only because I have to. Yeah, so really, if you want all of these positive things to happen in your marriage, <laughs> you know, making sure that each person is heard and valued and knows that they are heard and valued and feels heard and valued really helps. So Becca, I have to say, believing that having a good marriage is going to give you a good sex life that is not really rocket, rocket science. science it's not <laughs> like there's there's not it's not a difficult logical leap we'll put no, it that way no and yet this is what we found is that you know when you feel like you are heard when you feel like happy with your marriage when you feel happy with your husband your sex life's going to be a lot better mm -hmm. not rocket science and so today on the podcast we want to say how can we just 
enjoy sex without stuff getting weird yep. because it really shouldn't be weird. This isn't rocket science. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be that hard, right? Like we've made mm -hmm. it far too complicated for ourselves. Really, it all just boils down to be nice people to each other, mm -hmm. be good to each other, treat each other well. You know, that's what we do when we're dating. That's why we want to marry each other. Yeah. So just do that. But sometimes <laughs> the way that we talk about sex is just weird. It's just <laughs> weird. And it makes sex seem really unappealing. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, one of the things that we often hear in a lot of the books that we reviewed is, especially male authors, but female authors will say this too, yep. is, Women, you can never possibly understand how much he needs sex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so women, you will never understand how much he needs sex. Now, but then they'll also say he needs sex the way that you need emotional connection. He needs sex the way that you need to feel loved and close. Mm -hmm. And so they insinuate that they understand what women need. And they understand yes. women's needs. They understand yes. how women feel. They get how you feel. You just don't understand how he feels. Right. And again, the big problem here is that we are assuming that he is the one with the high libido and that he has this insatiable need for sex that she can never, ever understand. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true in a large proportion of marriages. Yeah. In 60% of marriages, yes, he has the higher sex drive. That does not mean that he has an insatiable sex drive that she can't understand. It yeah. just means much higher or a slightly higher. Yeah, like maybe drive. he'd like to have sex three times a week and she'd be okay with two. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's like he wants sex a lot and she never wants sex. And obviously that's a problem. Yeah, but both of those are off, can be unhealthy. Yes. Or, you know, in 20% of marriages, roughly, they have the same libido. Mm -hmm. And then in another 20%, roughly, you know, she's the one with the higher libido. So in the 40% of marriages, do those women not understand how little their husbands want sex? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, if, if women who have the lower libido can never, ever, ever understand how much their husbands want sex, mm -hmm. what about the men in marriages where their wives want sex yeah. more than they do? Or the so, same amount? So how about we just not make this weird? I know. Okay? Here, is a, here is a way to make this not weird. When we look at the sexual response cycle, we're going to get a little bit scientific here, okay? Mm -hmm. But don't worry, you can manage this. The sexual response cycle for some people looks like desire, excitement, and arousal. Mm -hmm. So you're going to want sex, then you're going to feel excited about sex, and you're going to start to get aroused. For some people, it doesn't look like that, though. For some people, it looks like excitement then desire, and then arousal. So for some people, the desire kicks in first. So they have what we would call a spontaneous libido where they want sex right away, like a microwave, they heat up fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for some people, they need a little bit of wooing, but it doesn't matter if she is not excited and aroused before they start sex, if she has confidence that she will become aroused. Mm -hmm. Because then they end sex pretty much the same way. Yeah. <laughs> and so this whole idea that she will never understand him, it, it like, it dismisses what we know about libido. Yeah, I just wish that when we talked about libido, we could talk about it more like, you know what? You might have a higher or lower libido. That might shift throughout your marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, things get in the way and then things lighten up. Libido is one of those things which can be a bit of a canary in a coal mine. You yeah. know, if it suddenly goes away, maybe look at why. Yeah. But for the most part, just give each other something to look forward to. Yep. and focus on serving each other and just kind of have fun with it and realize that, yeah, you should make it a priority, but don't let yourself be ruled by it. Yeah, 
It doesn't matter if she's not panting at the beginning, as long as you give her something to pant about and she ends up panting at the end. Or vice versa, if he isn't panting at the beginning. Yeah. You know, because some guys have more of a responsive libido. I know. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. And what we find too is that the more stressful life situation you have, the more your libido is going to be responsive. Mm -hmm. And you might need a little bit of wooing. When she has little kids, yeah. <laughs> her libido tends to be more responsive than spontaneous. Okay. Then she hits her late 30s, early 40s, and the kids are older and don't need her much and suddenly she gets a spontaneous libido yeah <laughs> and if we just make this not weird like oh he has needs she will never understand no like you know if, if someone has a higher libido that should matter to us if your spouse has a higher libido it should matter to you yeah. because you love your spouse yeah and sex is great you should figure out how to make it great and you should figure out how to like enjoy it together but it doesn't have to be this weird thing where like he is man he yeah. needs sex you woman you yeah. need talk. And it also doesn't mean that like if your spouse has a higher libido than you, that you're then obligated to fulfill every single one of their sexual urges. You're not. No. Like just because someone has a higher libido does not mean that they get to call all of the shots. Like this is just a relationship. Like with mm -hmm. everything else in a relationship, just be kind. It's not that hard. Yeah, but I think here's another way that we talk about stuff weird. I think the problem, especially in Christian circles, is that we equate sexual attraction with lust. We've yeah. talked about this a ton on the podcast. I won't rehash it too much. But we do want to talk about one element and one result of that is that if we equate sexual attraction with lust, then whenever someone feels sexual attraction for someone else or mm -hmm. has an urge for sex, they think they have to get that filled right now or else they're going to sin. We've been having a really good discussion on our Facebook group for the launch team for the Great Sex Rescue about the 72 hour rule when it comes to sex, which is in essence uh, this rule that evangelicalism um, has kind of pushed where men need sex every 72 hours. The minute they get married, a switch happens in their brain and they can no longer go 72 hours without ejaculating, even though they did for the 24 years leading up to their wedding. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're, so, being, you're being a little <laughs> bit facetious. But no, we found this in a lot of books. Stormy on Marsh, Power of Praying Wife yep. said it, Sheet Music said it, you know, when you get married, you're promising to have no, sex. No, what's what he said is if you aren't willing to have sex two to three times a week for the rest of your life, don't get married. I think right. that's what he said. Yeah. Something like that. Every man's battle says the 72 hour rule. Yeah. Um, there's multiple books reference the 72 hour rule and most women report hearing it. We have a great story in the great sex rescue. Can I tell the story? Yeah, of course. One woman that we interviewed said they got married and she made sure that she initiated sex every 72 hours. Mm -hmm. Okay. Made sure that her husband had his cup filled up as yep. some books talk about it you know that he had his fill that he was ready to go out in the world without being tempted to lust because he had had his sexual yes fun right yes and then like a couple of years into marriage she started feeling really upset because he never initiated sex mm -hmm. and she's like does he not like me does he not does he not find me attractive because she was always the one initiating so she sat down and talked to him and he said i was just trying to keep up to you <laughs> And so they had a frank discussion and they realized he didn't need sex every three days. No. And she didn't need sex every three days. They actually had very similar libidos. I think they said they settled out to like around once a week or so. Yeah, and they were perfectly happy and fine. And yeah. then he started initiating sometimes and they were much better off. But she was having sex every 72 hours out of fear because she felt this was the rule. Yeah, and this is the rule that's been said over and over and over again. And we will say we scoured the research for it, we could not find any research that shows that men get physical discomfort after 72 hours. Yeah. Now we followed all the footnotes in yeah. the evangelical books and I finally figured out where the 72 hour rule came from. Mm -hmm. It came from a book that James Dobson wrote. I believe it was in 1977. It was somewhere around then. Yes. That because men's testicles fill up with semen every 72 hours that 
they would have to ejaculate and so they would it would be so uncomfortable for them that they would have this need yeah and there's sex. lots and there's lots of medical research shows that yeah like semen tends to re- like kind of re- recycle through mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're kind of getting new little swimmers every yeah. 72 hours but there's no evidence at all that it's uncomfortable yeah and you know we we looked at all the medical research like how yeah. long do men go before they feel uncomfortable and there really wasn't any consensus no nope, no consensus at all in fact it actually really does seem to be even when they look at studies between how often men masturbate it's mm-hmm. really different from culture to culture yeah. Um, even in groups that are very pro-masturbation. Like, we're not talking about conservative religious groups. We're talking yeah. about just general dudes who yeah. are fine with it. Some cultures go, like, maybe once a week. Some people, it's, like, multiple times a day. And it yeah. does seem to be more cultural than biological. Yeah. So we need to be careful when we have these things to not say weird, out-of-nowhere rules Mm-hmm. That are just kind of based in, I mean, maybe even just one or two men's experience. Yeah, maybe it was James Thompson's marriage. Who knows? We have I don't no know. idea. But that's <laughs> the thing. We have no idea. Yeah. Because no one actually cited anything. Now, are we saying that it's bad to have sex every 72 hours? No. No. In fact, you know, research has shown that more frequent sex in general, like not necessarily at the daily level, but more frequent sex in general tends to lead to happier marriages and well, happier marriages tend to have more frequent sex. It, yeah. You know, and that's great. If sex is great, which it is. And if it's fun for both of you, which it should be, why would you not want it more often? Yeah. And we've even had, we had one woman in our focus groups even say that, uh, you know, she and her husband, when they were working through the obligation sex message, she was totally in charge of initiating. And after they kind of got past the whole deconstructing those harmful beliefs and getting to a really healthy, great place of sex where she was really enjoying it, they actually kind of fell back into the three days thing. Yeah, it's just, just this time they were doing it because they wanted to, yeah. not because they had to. And that was, and that made such a big difference for her, and it made her actually be able to really enjoy sex. Yeah, so we're not saying it's bad no. to have sex every 72 hours. We're saying you should not require yourselves to have sex every 72 hours. What you should do is say, you know what, I, I want to prioritize our marriage. I love mm-hmm. you. I want to have fun with you. And then you might notice, geez, we have not been having sex very often, like, yeah. What's going on in our lives? Let's figure that out. But yeah. in general, like, you know, if you're spending too much time on Netflix, let's take Netflix off and let's have some fun. Yeah. But let's do it because it's something that is natural in our relationship and flows out of how we feel about each other instead and, of an And not because, yeah, and not because one guy wrote about it in a book in 1970 and never fact-checked it. Mm-hmm. Because like, that's, that's just, that's just weird. Yeah. And so when we do talk about sex in this way, where we talk about, you know, lust as being the same thing as sexual attraction, when we talk about how men need sex every 72 hours, we talk about how men can't control themselves if they get too aroused or too hot and heavy. Mm-hmm. When we talk about how, you know, men are constantly on the brink of sexual sin, you know, what can happen is frankly, we buy into a lot of these really negative things. And we were talking to one woman who posed the question of, but what happens if you're married to a man who really, really believes a 72 hour rule? Mm-hmm. You know, who says he needs sex every 72 hours. And I have, I have a theory and this is like, my theory itself is obviously not like proven by science, but it's yes. based in the research that we've read. Yeah. And this isn't know? in our book. This, this is isn't in our book. This, this is, is literally just, just my this theory. This is just Becca spouting off on the podcast. No, but like, I think what happens a lot of times is the way we talk about male sexuality demonizes it so much that the physical feelings of arousal can become very anxiety provoking for men, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're told when you get aroused, when you feel lustful thoughts, which of course, remember, sexual attraction is conflated with lustful thoughts. Yeah. When you feel attraction, right? Like when you get aroused, you're on your way to sinning. Mm -hmm. It's never just arousal. Yeah. Arousal is a threat that something is coming. 
-hmm. right? Like if you're raised in an evangelical mindset that says these things, and remember not all evangelical mindsets do, but there is a very large strain of it. Like the every man's battle mindset, you know, this idea that the minute that you get aroused or you're sexually attracted to someone, you're automatically sinning in Mm -hmm. essence. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you look at a woman and you become aroused in a way, and remember not all arousal is just erections, you know, but you start feeling your heart pound or something, like you're automatically lusting. It's like, well, no, not necessarily. You know, but then you get married and you start feeling like, I could use some sex. Mm -hmm. And that's a threat, right? Because your body is saying, I'm on my way to needing sexual release. And I know that because I'm a man, I'm going to be tempted to find it elsewhere. And so when you feel these feelings of arousal, I just wonder if there's this almost anxiety that comes along with it, which is why men feel like they need to get release every single time they feel arousal, mm-hmm. you know, because arousal shouldn't be a threatening thing. That's how men talk about it. Where like, you will never understand his need. You will never understand these things. And there are a lot of high drive wives out there who do not say this. Yeah. Wives who feel arousal and they're able to go about their day not being a terrible person. Mm -hmm. But we talk about sex in this really weird way when it comes to men. Like it's so powerful and it completely overtakes them and they have no control. And so then, of course, if you get aroused subconsciously, you'd kind Mm -hmm. of feel like I'm on my way to something I don't want to do, whether it's pornography, whether it's lusting, whether it's not getting what you're owed. Yeah. If you've been taught this weird sin, but also entitlement teaching about your own sexuality as a man mm-hmm. that must just be very psychologically difficult again this is just it's just talking about stuff like it's weird it's yeah. like we expect people to be loving and to be kind and to treat each other as their neighbor in every situation but when it comes to sex mm-hmm. nope he has needs and not only that he has needs that will get met whether it's by you or someone else and that's mm-hmm. what women are told a lot mm-hmm so we're going to bring Andrew Bauman on the podcast again, and we've got a reader question for him, and he's going to help us think through why sometimes this male sexual drive is seen as a weird thing when it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have Andrew Bauman joining us again. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here again. Loving being a recurring guest. Yes, and and our listeners have given me some great feedback about you. And I need to tell you too, Keith and I sent in the manuscript for the Good Girls Guide, or sorry, for the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex, which is coming out next year. We just finished it last weekend, and we quoted the sexually healthy man in it quite a bit. So, awesome resource, everybody, that Andrew wrote, sexually healthy man. So, thank you for that. So, Andrew, Rebecca, and I have been talking about why do we make everything so weird in the church about sex? And I thought, who's weirder than Andrew? Let's bring Andrew on to help us not be so weird. (laughs) There you go. There you go. No, I I pride myself in my, my weirdness at times. (laughs) Weird and, and sex. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Cause we do, we talk about sex really weird in the church. Like we talk about how guys have this insatiable drive and women don't have a drive and we have to satisfy his lust so that he doesn't lust after someone else and it just all gets so weird it's it's not you know how do we get back to something which is healthy and how do we stop seeing sexuality in like such a negative way and I know you've written a lot about how sexuality can become kind of an ugly part of our life instead of a beautiful part of our life Yes, exactly. And I just want to, and I know I've said this before, I think in one of our conversations, but it's important to note if I know, you know, in the American church, I think it's 90% of pastors are, are male. And so if you have the 90% and then of those 90%, I think it was 50% 
have some type of relationship with pornography. And so you got to think of that as the starting point. So if I'm going to have, if I'm going to lead my congregation and I'm a pastor in which I was a pastor and I did struggle with um, pornography for years while I was a pastor. And so I can use my own life as an example, but like, I'm, I'm going to lead out of that place of a pornographic mindset. I'm going to lead out of that place of shame because I have a hidden life. I have a secret life. So we got to start there knowing that a lot of this information that we're receiving is from men who have not done their work on their own sexuality. You just said something really interesting that I know you talk about a lot in the sexually healthy man. And I think this is what we quoted you on, but can you explain what you mean by pornographic mindset? Cause I thought that was so important. Yeah. Yeah. And another language I use is a pornographic style of relating. So they kind of go hand in hand, but basically we begin to relate to the world um, like we do pornography or in our mind, we begin to engage our mindset pornographically. And so to, to think of, uh, let's see, an example uh, for my own broken sexuality, I would kind of move, I went to like five different colleges and I, I would realize I would go to a different college. Um, this was kind of before my big mental break and uh, breakdown, but I would go and I'd try to find the hottest girl on campus and start dating her basically trying to affirm my own insecurities, trying to feel better about myself. But basically, just like I used to when I was clicking on different images to try to find mm -hmm. this perfect arousal template to heal, soothe my wounding, I did it in real life of bouncing the girl to girl, not being able to have a real relationship, not being able to have to authentic intimacy and sexualizing that intimacy to try to mend, heal my own um, wounding that I never dealt with. And what does it mean to sexualize your intimacy? We do this all the time. And it's going to be so important for us to begin to start naming. We eroticize and sexualize our wounds. Okay. So, so much of when you begin to be curious about, let's say your pornography addiction is you have to begin to start looking at your wounds. That's why I encourage men. Let's not be judgmental about what type of porn we're looking at. Let's actually, that's probably, that's the first session that when mm -hmm. I work with men, okay, what, what type of porn arouses you most? What's your deepest, darkest sexual fantasy? And we start there and it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they're kind of taken back, but it's like, that's the starting point because then we can trace and use that as a map into the wound. So we look at the type of porn we look at taps back into our deepest wounding. And our deepest wounding is a place where we can begin to offer kindness and care. And then it actually takes away the hunger to objectify, to devour women. So that's what I mean by sexualizing our wound. Now, I know a lot of women listening to this are going to say, well, why, if my husband really needs kindness, why is he watching porn? Why isn't he just coming to mm -hmm. me and saying, hey, right. I just need love? Because he has no idea what authentic intimacy is. Because when you've been raised on porn, what has porn taught you about intimacy? What has it taught you about connection? It's quick. It's selfish. It's the, the, the screen does not have needs. The screen does not have desire. I have a desire. It, that's the, the pornographic mindset or the pornographic style of relating. It has made me a selfish lover. Um, it is all about me. And so I'm actually terrified of genuine intimacy. I'll actually run. If you offer me the real thing, I will run from it because um, I'm terrified of you. And I'm terrified that you will expose in me the fraud that I am. 
Right. So you're, you're really, what you're really doing is covering up who you really are and you're afraid of your wife. So then the only way to really get free, and this is what I've been, I've been learning more and more as I read more and more about this in your book and in some other books is like, the only way to get free is not just to try harder, you know, to put more filters on the computer and try harder, but it's instead to recognize what is the deep, hunger that I have in my life where I've looked for other things to satisfy instead of Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. We are making idols all the time. Um, we are making false gods. And, and for me in my 13 year addiction to pornography, um, you know, for me to heal my wounds, which was my own unaddressed sexual abuse, my own parents' divorce, my own um, father's abuse of my mother, pornography, in a sense, helped me escape that because I could numb out and check out. And then as I became, you know, out of my teenage years, becoming an adult, beginning to have relationships, I began to get more and more exposed of, I don't know what I'm doing because, you know, from 13 to early twenties, I'm using pornography. Um, I'm soothing with pornography. I'm not addressing all those wounds that I just named. Um, But here's the thing with our wounds. They always catch up with us. They always catch up with us through addiction, through, it comes out sideways in some ways. And a lot of times, sadly, it comes out through marriages. It comes out through domestic violence. It comes out through uh, different types of abuse. Yeah. I love what you said. I remember, I remember one quote from your book about how you need to, you need to grieve, you know, the child who got sucked into this and you need to grieve the, the pain you've caused your wife and the pain you've caused your family. Like you need to grieve all of that and allow yourself to, to feel that and to feel the wounds that you've done to your wife. (laughs) in order to really find wholeness. And if you're the woman and you're listening to this and you want your husband to understand, yeah, like not just that this is a sin, because we all know that porn is wrong. Well, at least I hope we do. You know, <laughs> you know the porn is wrong, but it, it, it's not just about quitting. It's about figuring out the root cause so that you actually get transformed right. and healed. Right. So, so, you know, shame is a terrible motivator, right? And so growing up just, you know, my Southern Baptist, um, church, like porn is bad. Porn is bad. Like, yeah, I get that. But then also not, not preparing me of what healthy sexuality is. That's not a big enough conversation to say porn is bad. Sex is bad. Mm -hmm. Just wait till you're married. We have to have a more sex positive comprehend. That's why I love the work you're doing a comprehensive thing of like, sex is beautiful. Sex is good. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's build a comprehensive sex positive ethic that's not just, you know, saying sex is bad. No, sex is beautiful. Yeah. How are we going to lean into that? Because we don't have the language. Um, mm-hmm. The books, mm-hmm. I mean, the Christian marriage books that you've been reviewing. And it's just like, yeah, you can tell why we don't have the language. We right. haven't been given the language. And that's why I feel so passionate about helping prepare this next generation of healthy sexual people. Yeah, because if all we're talking about when it comes to sex is physical release, well, then why wouldn't you just go to porn? Like if that's all it is. Exactly. exactly. You know, no, this is it's it's about this deep intimacy, which means you have to actually be able to share with each other. And if you have someone who can't share because they're wounded, then sex is never going to be all that it should be. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we have to start with ourselves, right? We have Mm -hmm. to do our own work, our own self-healing work. You know, you can point to your partner all the time, but until each person takes ownership of their own story, that intimacy will be broken down. You can't help, you can't make your partner change. They have to, you know, you can only share, this is my experience of you. 
this is this is what I'm feeling. And the hope is that each person takes responsibility for their own story and their own wounding. I just picture Jesus who so wants to come into these deepest areas of our lives that we have kept hidden from everybody. Mm. And he wants to transform them, but he can't do that unless we're willing to mm. open up. I just think of the courage that that takes, yes. but yet also how much pain you're causing when you don't open up those doors, like pain to yourself, but oh. especially pain to your family and pain to your wife and exactly. or your husband, if you're the woman using porn, because that happens increasingly too. So exactly. exactly. Yeah. I think of doubting Thomas in the upper room and basically calling Jesus a liar. I don't believe you. And then Jesus's words are like, feel my wounds. Mm -hmm. Like that is our call. Mm -hmm. That is authentic engagement. Come to the vulnerable place. Come to the mm -hmm. place of my deepest scar. Come to the place of my deepest wounds. Here is true intimacy. Here mm -hmm. is true sexuality and connection in the wounded place. Yeah, exactly. And we should never, we should never go for a substitute. And yet that's what we're doing so much. And it's just tragic. And so I love the work that you're doing and helping bring especially men out of that so that they can experience that real transformational power of Jesus and find wholeness. So thank you for joining us again, Andrew. We always love having you on. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. All right. <laughs> okay. It is Rebecca and my dad Keith, hey, here. So my dad is a pediatrician yeah. and Sheila's husband, obviously. Yeah. And I have a toddler boy. We wanted Gorgeous to talk. little grandson. He is amazing. Yeah. So we are taking the next segment where we're talking about how we talk about children's sexuality, which should never really be a thing that we talk about, but unfortunately it's a little bit too common, okay? So mainly when we're talking about just how we need to not be unnecessarily weird about sex in the evangelical church, mm -hmm. you know, this needs to start really early. Like I talked in, I think my book, Why Didn't Rebel, about a comment that we got, an email we got from a woman saying that her two-year-old didn't understand the importance of dressing modestly and she kept on taking yeah. off her clothes. Oh my and gosh. we're like, she's two. There yeah. is no modesty when you are two. Yeah. You're like, trying to show everyone your pretty big girl pants. And like, <laughs> <laughs> like and, you, and we should love that and celebrate I know. that. It's and, innocence. And the innocence is so fantastic. I get that all the time in my office. I mean, parents, I get mothers mortified yep. coming in with their 12-month-old boy who's like found his penis and they're thinking he's turning into some sort of pervert because he does it all the time. And it's like, he does it all the time because it feels good. There's a lot yeah. of nerves there. It's it's not a sexual thing. No, he's though. got a built-in squeeze toy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not just that, it, there is nerves there, right? Yeah. And so it's going to give a response. So he's yeah. going to do it. He's exploring his environment the same way that boys will stick beads up their nose like they're just exploring it's it's innocent it's nothing to get sexualized about no and, but i really have to talk a lot of moms down from that mm -hmm. and and it's it's always puzzled me how they naturally go there yeah and i think that there's just a lot of fear around this right yeah. and so we we tend to look for things that reinforce our fears when we talk yeah to I, th kids. I think we really obsess about sexuality yeah. in the evangelical church and you know like all this kind of stuff we yeah and just in general or not hang-ups but like you know, just we're really, really nervous about everything. We really are. So we have a couple examples we wanted to work through. Okay? okay. So here's one that comes from an article by Shanti Felton called You Need to Know These Four Pitfalls for Teenage Boys. Okay? So we're not going to deal with the whole article. There's just one point we wanted to talk about. The very first point she says is one, it starts young. And the it is referring to visual temptations um, that she's talking about earlier. 
She says this. Yes, I knew men and boys were visual, but I didn't really grasp just how visual until my son was thunderstruck by the pictures in the Victoria's Secret shop window at age of four. I like those ladies, he said in an odd tone of voice, suddenly and completely oblivious to everything else around him. Their bare tummies make my tummy feel good. The male brain is the male brain from the earliest age, and as I share in through a man's eyes, that means we moms need to know how to help those little eyes be careful what they see from the earliest ages. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of upsetting. I just want to say, from the earliest ages. Well, I, I, I don't think a four-year-old boy... To paint him as if this is a sexual thing for him, I don't think. I don't that that's is. fair. I don't think no. that's fair at all. And and, and also too, I, I don't like the idea that you're you're teaching him what he's seeing. Yeah. Like it should be about how do you process things. Exactly. Right. Because as he grows and and does become a sexual being later in mm-hmm. his life, it's not about what his eyes are falling into contact with. No. It's how does he process that and how does it what is it what does he do with that stimulus that comes into his into his eye and then into his brain yeah exactly our job is not to make sure that our boys don't ever see women i mean for pete's sake if i have more kids odds are my eldest son Mm -hmm. you know will see me breastfeeding openly his siblings you know like i've had patients who had four-year-olds who were still breastfeeding some people breastfeed up to age five well i mean even the i think the who even recommends it especially if you live in an area that doesn't have um consistent water supplies yeah and, and i don't i don't it's not sexual. No, exactly. So to think of that, like, that doesn't make sense. That it doesn't makes... make sense at all. And also, I do think this is a problem that I see in a lot of areas, especially with children and sexuality, is we take mm-hmm. one example and we conflate it to kind of prove what we want to prove. What do you um, mean by that? This little boy saying, I like those ladies, their bare tummies make my tummy feel yeah. good. And now the argument is we moms need to know how to help those little eyes be careful what they see from the earliest ages. Why? Like, why? how do you know that that is proof that all four-year-olds are yeah. going to have sexual temptation issues? And that just made me sad. Yeah. I, I haven't heard four-year-olds talk like that either, too, no. uh, myself a lot. So I, I, I would, if I actually, if a mother told me that her four-year-old said that, I'd kind of want to get more information. Yeah, that would be a red, be, bit of a red flag. Yeah, or at least a yellow flag. Yeah. <laughs> I'd want to get some more information about that because it's a bit of an odd thing. I don't think like, yeah. most four-year-olds, that I, I interrupt with a lot of four-year-olds, and that doesn't strike me as something that a four-year-old would typically say. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, like, if your kid has any sort of curiosity yeah. about nakedness, yeah. that's not lust that's not visual temptation yeah it's just trying to figure out how the world works curiosity yeah you know kids are curious i mean that's like four four olds is a typical age to play doctor right yeah (laughs) and i had parents i had to come you know pull down off the ceiling for that as well too right it's like you know like kids are curious and that's that's okay and so the important thing as i said is it's not to like freak out over the behavior but to help them process all that and (laughs) in a loving environment become healthy mature people and understand that yeah i know i mean i even remember that in my kindergarten class we had a talk about how we don't show our privates on the recess playground like you don't have to take your pants off and can't ask anyone to take their pants off because these are private parts (laughs) private parts private parts these are my (laughs) private parts right like this is just what you do in kindergarten but we don't attach shame to them no four-year-old it's no it's not a shameful thing they don't know any better no you learn to hang up your backpack and keep your pants on exactly (laughs) exactly good life lessons and so that we want to take it from like you know the 18 month old 12 month old finding their penis to the four-year-old just having normal curiosity (laughs) neither of those things are sexual and then what do you do when you're in like the preteen years right when you are becoming a sexual being Okay. Here's, here's an example in Through a Man's Eyes that I just wanted to talk about really quickly. 
So Craig, which is Shanti's co-author of this book, who then talks throughout the book about his struggle with sexual sin, talks about his first experience seeing Playboy when he was a preteen. He says he was at a friend's house. His friend pulled out a Playboy magazine. He was like, oh, dude, have you seen this? You know how it often goes. Mm-hmm. And he says this, I can't remember a ton of things from childhood, but I can remember some of these images as if I saw them yesterday. I still remember the instinctive thrill in my heart and my developing loins when I saw those women. Yes, there was an aspect of forbidden fruit to all this. I was, after all, secretly looking at a dirty magazine at my friend's house, but that was a side thrill. Most of what I felt was purely biological. I didn't turn into a rampaging porn addict, nor did I become a lustful monster who wanted to undress every woman with my eyes. I was just a kid whose brain was working the way God intended, and I stayed a kid whose brain worked the way God intended. And then they go to say, I know it is difficult to grasp and you may want to take a deep breath here, but this is one thing that your son, husband, and father all have in common. Most guys like looking at women and they like looking at or imagining naked women. They may or may not actually do it, but something deep down inside them sure wants to. This is true whether the male in question is age nine or 90. I just wanted to say that first of all, I am glad that they mentioned that just seeing pornography didn't turn him into a lustful monster. I thought that was actually a really positive thing because we need to say, like, just seeing porn doesn't turn you into a horrible person. Yeah, although it's it's just tragic that the poor young man had to go through that. Yeah, and that was the thing that really stood out to me was he was saying this is just what God intended. God did not intend him to see pornography as his first real sexual experience. That is not your brain responding as God intended. God intends for our first sexual experience to be a consensual, loving, mutual, intimate affair. Mm -hmm. You know, an affair might be the wrong word. No, but like that is the word for it. But like, you know, like God intends our first sexual experience to be something that is God honoring and that is human honoring and that is yourself and your partner honoring, right? Like that's all I'm saying is when you are in... A healthy marriage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sexuality is a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God and it's a beautiful thing. Pornography is not. Pornography is mm-hmm. ugly. Pornography is about control. It's about objectification. It's about using a person rather than truly knowing a person, which is what sexuality is about. Mm-hmm. And as a young boy, getting your first experience being that, that's just terrible because it derails your way of looking at sex and it, and it, it that, that those kind of things can stick with you. Clearly, he still remembers those images years and years later. It obviously had a very profound impact. It's unfortunate that he was exposed that young. But the thing I would say is that, yes, men are biologically designed to like women. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? But does that mean that I am consciously fighting to not think of a woman naked every waking moment. Well, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I work with women all day long. I work around nurses. I deal with young moms. I, like, I'm doing this. I'm not lusting after them or struggling to not think about them naked all day long. It's just, that's not even in my mindset. Yeah. Even if a woman goes by and you didn't expect to see her and suddenly you realize you see her out of the corner of your eye and you're, you look at her because she's gorgeous and she has nice curves and stuff, you go, oh, and you go, that's that's nice, nice and you move on with the rest of your day because you don't sit there and go, oh my gosh, stop looking. Like, yeah. Because you just train yourself to see women as people. And yeah, you have a biologic urge when you see something that looks nice, but I suspect that women probably have a biologic urge when they see a nice looking man well, as well too. That's what I was going to say is this whole idea of this is how God intended for men to be. 
It's, did they ever talk to any girls who were exposed to pornography yeah, when they were That's pre-teens? true, too. Yeah. Right? Because when girls are exposed to pornography, they have the same experience. They have the morbid curiosity. They have, like, yeah. the, the feeling of wanting to seek it out again, needing the next thrill. Like, talk to female porn addicts, and it kind of sounds the exact same. Yeah. And I think this is the problem, is we just, when we equate male sexuality, including children male, like, nine-year-olds yeah. having, like, yeah. a that sexuality. Was, that, was, that was an unfortunate... I assume she didn't mean to say that nine-year-olds actually. I'm assuming. I think it was sort of like meant to be poetic, like nine to ninety. Yeah, but the problem is that we shouldn't be just simply flippantly saying that children have sexuality the same way that adults do because that is literally how pedophiles groom children. Well, I would tell you that nine-year-old a nine-year-old boy is not pubertal, right? The uh, the onset of puberty in boys is somewhere from nine to fourteen. So that's when puberty starts to develop. So if you're nine, you're pre-pubertal, right? Yeah. And pre-pubertal kids aren't sexual. I, that, that's just that's just reality, right? And that doesn't and mean it, they it, don't have curiosity about sex, absolutely. but they're not sexual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so. and I think that we just need to understand that if a nine-year-old truly is a sexual person, that should raise red flags. Oh yeah, if you have sexual sexualized behaviors in yeah. pre-pubertal kids, that's definitely a concern. It's not just a well. This is just he's just a boy, and that's how God made boys. No, if I if I had if there's a pre-pubertal boy who was engaging in behaviors that look like adult sexuality that's mm-hmm. a that's a red flag for possible child sexual abuse going on there's all kinds of things that, that that's something that's a very that would be concerning so yeah. and it's very important for us to recognize normal curiosity yeah. non-sexual things and things that are actually have a sexual tone to them that should raise concerns for yes us. exactly so yeah we're just saying that we need to stop talking about this stuff like it's this total unwinnable battle that all men have from age four mm-hmm. when it's yeah. not just because you're attracted to a woman doesn't mean you're having some horrible struggle to not picture her naked. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's just not be weird. Let's not be weird with kid sexuality. Let's yeah, which not again, be should not be a thing. Adult sexuality. Let's just... Sex is great for adults who are married. It's normal to have sexual feelings and it's normal for kids to explore and let's leave it at that. Yeah. Okay, so we have some happy things to share with you. We have a couple of happy emails just because, again, we know the podcast is sometimes heavy and people have asked us to share some happy things. So Mm -hmm. I do get a lot of encouraging emails and I want to share some with you. One woman wrote, and this is honestly one of my favorite kinds of emails to get. She says, I want to say thank you so, so much for the words you've been speaking these past months and especially your recent podcast episode about spiritual homelessness. That was Mm -hmm. back in December. I will put a link to that in the podcast description. I feel relief that I'm not alone in this and hearing Keith speak about how he won't step aside anymore and be quiet about how disrespectful and damaging the church has been towards women was perhaps the most respected and seen I have ever felt and it made me cry. Mm. I should have kept that on for this one. I should have kept that on. Oh, well, anyway. I've been struggling this year to interact with Christians regarding anything spiritual and even to read my Bible. I don't trust my Christian communities anymore because of the types of harmful teachings you've been discussing on your blog. I love Jesus and want to follow him, but I've honestly been losing hope. You are encouraging me that it's okay for me to stay on my ground and speak up too, even when I'm told it's not my place. Mm. All I ever heard growing up was that it was only okay to confront people if they were outside the church or were not conservative enough. I'm scared to speak up. I believe I will lose the favor of my entire Christian community and through my childhood I got the message that if I didn't look enough like the Christian community around me I was living a sinful life. It's hard to shake that fear even when I know it's not true. Thank you for showing me that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And let's just be reminded that the teachings you're talking about are the ideas that all men all struggle with lust. Wives are obligated to give their husbands sex. That men have sexual needs women don't have. 
Mm-hmm. Like, these are the kinds of messages we're going against. These are not of Christ. And we've also been talking about the sexual abuse scandals yeah. that have been ignored, a lot of things. And we just want to tell people Jesus is not like that. And Jesus wants us to truly know the God who sees us. Mm-hmm. He is the God who sees us. And he is not the God who wants to force you to do something you don't want to do in order to keep someone else from sinning. Yeah. Like, I mean, Jesus says that my burden is easy and my yoke is light, right? That's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as saying you're obligated to fulfill every sexual urge. You're never going to be able to trust your husband. Like all these things do not make your burden easier. He said he wanted, he created us for great intimacy and that's what he wants for us. Okay. Here's another one. This is a great one. I am a 31 year old woman who is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. That's not the great part. No, that's horrible. No, that's horrible. I discovered your blog a few years ago. Um, I've spent a couple of different seasons in counseling, working through different aspects of healing. And at some point I realized what an awful view of sex I had as a result of abuse. Mm. I've spent several years praying that God would help reshape that view to line up with beautiful, mutual, intimate knowing that he designed sex to be. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Your blog was one of the primary things God used to help shift my perspective and provide healing. This year I met an amazing man and we were married at the end of November. We had a fantastic start to our (laughs) sex life on our honeymoon and things have continued to grow and get better over the last month. I'm confident that your ministry is one of the primary reasons and I wanted to thank you. For a long time I was terrified of how sex would be in marriage and now it's a thing that I'm so grateful for. I know the realm you work in can be discouraging and draining, and I'm sure a lot of times it feels like nothing is changing, Mm. but God is using you, and I just wanted to share a snippet of my story and hopefully encourage you. God provided healing in my life through you and your team, so thank you for allowing God to use you even in a very challenging space. Yeah. That's just lovely. Mm -hmm. And isn't that, I mean, you know, sexual abuse is probably one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through, but it can be redeemed. First of all, please license trauma therapy yep. with a licensed counselor. But, mm-hmm. you know, as Rachel Den Hollander said, her husband was such a vehicle of healing for her. Like God gave her her husband as a vehicle of healing. Mm-hmm. And we're just so glad that they experienced that. So thank you. I want to end with a new review that came in of our book. Yay! I texted this one to you the other night. Um, let me find it. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? I'll read it. Okay. okay. I have followed Sheila's blog to love, honor, and vacuum for several years. Coming from a background of legalism and purity culture and being reluctant, loads of shame, feeling like I was betraying my family and possibly the church, false guilt, to fully embrace the way she wrote about marriage, sex, and what it means to be a woman, I just periodically checked in. Over the past year or so, though, my sweet savior has been gently leading me into a freedom and secure identity in him alone that I never thought possible. When I heard Sheila was writing a book about sex and that she had surveyed thousands of women in research for said book, my interest was piqued. I started devouring everything on her blog, reveling in the truths she and her team were shouting about marriage, sex, respect, and equality. I was appalled to really dive into what the books that were lauded to me as the end-all be-all of Christian marriage advice had actually done to my self-image, my confidence as a woman of God, and my trust in my good husband's heart. Blog, podcast, the book was the next logical step. I pre-ordered and signed up for the launch team. I've been married for nearly 14 years, have a good man for a husband, and though we've had our minor conflicts surrounding sex over the years, it has always been great. I really didn't think the messages we both received about lust, women as stumbling blocks, porn, etc. had affected our relationship until I read the book. I realized, even though I don't believe those messages anymore, even though I trust my husband and feel secure in his love, I still have habits and ways I relate to him that are based in those views. That I could cause him to turn to porn by saying no to sex. That sex is something 
something I owe him, even though it's something we both enjoy. And he has always made my pleasure and orgasm a priority. As I read the book, I found myself wanting to scream in anger, cry in frustration, and laugh with joy, shouting, Amen, sister! The Great Sex Rescue will always be a part of my freedom song. There is no other book like this one speaking to the evangelical world. I will be recommending it to friends as often as I can. Married, engaged, single. Its message is life-giving and swelling with freedom for women who've been under the burden of these teachings for too long. Several hundred women, apparently. And then she quotes us at the end. We said this. Several hundred women, apparently, can be ignored. We hope the voices of 20,000 will make people listen. And she's referring there to when we sent the report to focus on the family of Mm -hmm. several hundred women who had been abused because of love and respect, and they ignored us. And so we did this survey of 20,000 to show what really creates healthy marriages. You know what? It's it's not weird. Seriously. Love each other, listen to each other, care about each other, value each other's opinions, value each other's feelings. And sex is going to be good. And you don't need to make it weird. You don't owe anyone anything. Just be good to each other and aim for intimacy. And everything works a whole lot better. (laughs) It doesn't need to be weird. So that's us. By the next time you hear the Bear Marriage Podcast, The Great Sex Rescue will be live. Mm -hmm. Um, We are so excited about it. And like this woman said, you know, she didn't think she needed it, but it just showed her that often the things that we hear in church have really affected us, even if we don't realize it. Yeah. And I know for me, I didn't think I had internalized all this stuff, but after looking through the survey results, I realized I still had some unpacking to do. A lot of the results we found were like, even if you don't believe it, if you only hear it it affects you yeah and we can get to the other side we can stop being weird (laughs) and we can start being jesus-centered that is our heart's cry that is what we pray the great sex rescue helps us do and so pre-order your copy now on next thursday for the bear marriage podcast maybe you even will have read it Mm mm-hmm